puppet masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know, unless you really do Where would we be without THC? We know the lying to us just don't know to what degree Where would we be without THC? The highest side chat show Carl Wood and Company Side chatters, when we look through history, we find that at the heart of most major events and movements is some manipulative organization looking to erode our freedom and solidify their control. Because power and influence seem to be the names of the game, and they think of us as little more than the points on the scoreboard. And not only is the past tainted by the winners who wrote it, but it's often being tweaked and revised to fit the latest agenda on a never ending carousel in this circus of life. And that is why it's important to hold everything up to the light properly consider the source, and take nothing for granted. Lucky for us, today's guest, Joseph Atwill, knows these things all too well, as his work and research has done things like expose the origins of Christianity and the New Testament as state-sponsored propaganda, made sense of Shakespeare in a new, related context, shown both sides of World War II to be Freemason-controlled, dusted for and found CIA fingerprints all over the 60s counterculture movement, expanded the web of MKUltra further than most, and peeled back the layers of more recent events to show them as just the latest pieces and the big puzzle for control of your mind. Joseph was helped along in this quest by the schooling of his youth, where he was taught Greek, Latin, and biblical studies at St. Mary's Military Academy in Japan. He then went on to study computer science, co-founded a couple of software companies, and sold off his share successfully in the mid-90s, allowing him to fully rededicate himself to his love for the study of early Christianity, which resulted in his well-known book Caesar's Messiah, The Roman Conspiracy to Invent Jesus. He then followed it up with a second book entitled Shakespeare's Secret Messiah, and the research has been going strong ever since, spiraling out into many different areas. The Great Dot Connector Extraordinaire, The Torture of Sacred Cows, and The Dismantler of the Power Pyramid Itself. Joe Atwell, welcome to the higher side. <laughs> wow, what an introduction. I'm exhausted just thinking about all that. <laughs> I mean, it's very kind words. Obviously, a lot of people contest my research in every single point, but I think it's solid. And I'm really happy to be here to talk about it with you. <laughs> well, heck yeah, man. And, you know, if they're fighting you, then you're doing something right. Yeah. And it is just a real pleasure to have you here. I know I'm a few years late to the Caesar's Messiah party, but I do just love the work you did on that. In fact, I hoped we could start there since it is the first time you've been on the show. And then maybe we can move forward in time to some other things. But in a nutshell, the Caesar's Messiah hypothesis is that a Roman imperial family, the Flavians, constructed the New Testament and created Christianity as a way to deflate the Jewish sects that were inspired to fight the Roman Empire because of their belief that a Messiah would come to lead them to military victory. So now you give them this Jesus, the peaceful Messiah, who says, turn the other cheek, don't fight back, and is ultimately steamrolled in brutal fashion by the Roman Empire. And it just makes so much sense. But maybe you can elaborate a bit about this new way of viewing Christianity and the best evidence for your case for people who just might not be familiar. Sure. Well, the first thing people need to understand to grasp 
Christianity is how implausible the religion is historically. It just makes no sense from what we record as the year one through the year 135. The Roman Empire was fighting against a messianic movement. These were Jews who were motivated to rebel against the Roman Empire who had colonized Judea by their belief in the coming of a Messiah. And that fact is recorded by the uh, Roman historian Flavius Josephus. He said, hey, what was most propelling the Jews to rebel against the empire was their belief in the coming of this Messiah. And so when Christianity emerges, it is right in the middle of this 135-year period where there was just one messianic rebellion against Rome after another. And so that would be the first thing that very often lay people who have understanding about Christianity misunderstand is that the Gospels characterize Jesus sort of in a pastoral and peaceful manner. He's wandering around and often doesn't have any interruptions from Roman military authorities. But this just could never have happened. In this period, the Jews who were rebelling against Rome would never have permitted someone to have claimed to be a Messiah and also would have cooperated with the Roman Empire. They would have certainly attempted to have killed that individual and destroy his movement. And that would have been recorded in the Gospels if the Gospels were history. So that's the first thing. It's just historically, it's the story of Jesus is really implausible, very, very suspicious. And then secondly, you have to understand that the Gospels are written using a genre of literature called typology. And typology is it's a little complicated. Basically, it just means that one story is based on another. And so that the character of Jesus Christ is a typologic story. I'm just going to give a real quick example. I don't want to get into the bog down this, you know, technical literary analysis, but just this is something that most people can understand very quickly. But oddly enough, most people are unaware of. You know, in the story of Matthew, the very first page of the Gospels, you have the famous story of Jesus's pre-ministry of his childhood. And that story starts at Matthew 2.13 with his father, Joseph, going to Egypt. Then you have the famous massacre of the young boys by Herod. Matthew 2.20, you've got this divine person telling Joseph he can go back to Judea. He says, they are dead, which sought the young child's life. And then you, you know, you return from Egypt to Israel. You have the baptism where Jesus passes through water. And then you go into the wilderness 40 days. And then you have the famous, the devil and Jesus engage. And, and you have the devil attempts to tempt him by bread. You have the line, do not tempt God. And then finally, at Matthew 4.10, Jesus resolves all this and points out that you must worship only God. Okay, so that's the pre-ministry of Jesus. And so in the Old Testament, Joseph goes to Egypt. Famous story. Everyone knows this. Then you have the Pharaoh massacring the boys. The next is you have the line that occurs in the New Testament is taken literally right out of the Old Testament, where the angel says to Moses, all the men are dead which sought thy life. Then you return from Egypt to Israel, you have the passing through water, and now you go into the wilderness, not for 40 days, but for 40 years. And they have these lines which appear in the New Testament are taken directly from out of the Old Testament, tempted by bread, do not tempt God, worship only God. Now, so one story is based on another. Now, this is a fictional genre, right? You don't 
write history using typology. Typology is, has different purposes. In a religious sense, it normally links prophets together or divine individuals, shows that the hand of God is passing over both of these individuals. And so there's parallelism. So anyway, this is the beginning of the Gospels, and this is the foundation of the character of Jesus. It's not a historical character. It's not a historical genre. It's not writing history. It's writing typology. And in Caesar's Messiah, I show that all of the events of Jesus's adult ministry are using the same genre. Okay, so they're all typologic. They're basically based on another story, and this would be the story of the Flavian military campaign. Makes a lot of sense because, for one thing, Jesus makes direct predictions of Flavian military victories, which, of course, is also very suspicious in terms of Jesus being a a Jewish Messiah, because why would he be predicting Roman military victories? But mm-hmm. he predicts that the Galilean towns would be crushed, Jerusalem would be encircled with a wall, the abomination of desolation that Daniel predicts will occur. He predicts the temple will be raised, not one stone on top of another. These are all military victories of the Flavian campaign against the Messianic movement and the war between 66 and 73. So right off the bat, you have a lot of events from the war that appear are predictions by Jesus, and these are given in the same sequence. You know, if you looked at the example I gave early on, one of the elements of it is sequence. All of the events in the New Testament that I talked about in Matthew, which are based upon events in the Old Testament, occur in the same sequence. So the way that you can really see that you're dealing with a completely fictional character with Jesus Christ is that if you start his adult ministry at the Sea of Galilee, where he calls the people together, his disciples, and he says, you know, if you follow me, you'll become fishers of men. And then you start comparing the events of his life with the events of the military campaign. You'll see that the events in Jesus's life are actually based upon these military campaign events, and that they're occurring in the same sequence and at the same geographical location. So, you you know, you start at the Sea of Galilee, you wander around Galilee for a bit, you head from there to Jerusalem, you stay outside of Jerusalem for a while, then you have a triumphant entrance into it. The temple is raised, basically, that Jesus makes the prediction once he gets inside the city. And then you go outside and then you have the crucifixion of Jesus. Well, all of these events, basically, throughout his adult ministry, once you lay them in the correct order relative to the military campaign, just laying them side by side, you can see that one campaign, one Jesus's religious campaign, is based completely on Titus's military campaign. They go to the same exact locations. They have these parallel events. Some of them are conceptual. We take a bit of mind puzzling to sort of see the parallelism, but very often they are transparent. They're just completely obvious. And then beyond that, often it's literally the same event. I mean, when Jesus predicts the crushing of the Galilean towns, these are the towns that were, in fact, destroyed. When he talks about Jerusalem being encircled with a wall, I mean, this is exactly what is accomplished by Titus during the military campaign. And then Jesus says, you know, the the temple will be raised. This is the actual event that he is predicting that Titus achieves. So that's the Caesar's Messiah thesis in a nutshell, is that The Flavians produced it, and then they left because they were very vain and wanted legacy. They put this typologic hidden level 
that people later on would recognize and see that they had created the literature. And then finally, the actual purpose from perspective of logic as to what they're actually trying to do with the typology is Jesus talks about a character he calls the Son of Man, and he says he's going to come in the future. He gives these specific things that occur when this individual appears. These are all events from the war. So you can see that what Jesus is really saying when he's predicting that the Son of Man is going to come is he's giving that title to the Roman Caesar. If you just took the Gospels and when Jesus talks about the coming of the Son of Man and you took out the phrase Son of Man and put in Titus Flavius, then the Gospels would make perfect sense because Titus actually claimed, or the Flavian Caesars claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. All of their court historians, Suetonius, Dio Tacitus, Josephus, they all said the same thing. They said that the Jews believed that a Messiah was going to come and lead them, but they were wrong about the identity of Messiah. The Messiah was actually talking about the Flavian Caesar. So when you understand the Gospels with that historical perspective, they just make perfect sense. All the mystery drops away, and the literature finally is easy to comprehend because as Christians and kind of New Testament scholars typically understand it, it's just they can't really make much sense out of it. But I think when people read Caesar Messiah, they can see that the Gospels are actually very logical, straightforward stuff. We just got to look at them through the right perspective. Mm. Well, I think that is a great overview. And it is just so fascinating. I mean, why wouldn't it be state-sponsored propaganda? Why wouldn't they be doing these kind of things at that time depth? And I know you're familiar with the work of Anatoly Fomenko, and I don't think either one of us agree with his conclusions, but the general idea of major timeline manipulations is really fascinating to me. And you do mention elements of false chronology a few times in Caesar's Messiah with a couple of comments about year one and the events of year 70 not being real dates and the list of popes that we map early history from could be fabricated to a degree. What are your thoughts on the idea that a lot more than just the Gospels could have been made up, or maybe a few decades or even a century of our official chronology might need to be reexamined? Well, I mean, unfortunately, once you kind of lose the first century, which I show, I mean, one of the things I show is that the dates that we use for the beginning of our chronology, the year one, the year 70, and even the list of popes, I mean, once you see that these dates are created for political purposes and religious purposes, then you lose the first century. There's just no way that time, as we know it, can be accurately computed. Fomenko goes into, you know, very large tracts of time being fictional, and I don't really know what to make of that. I think that when Fomenko criticizes Scalinger, who is kind of the best-known chronologer of the we are currently, you know, aware of. I think he's on really solid footing. I think that most of the stuff needs to be reanalyzed. As far as, you know, the overall, the rest of his stuff, I wouldn't have a clue. I think that a lot of his claims just leave me scratching my head. I mean, he talks, Fomenko talks about Tartary being this enormous, basically worldwide empire that was in conjunction with the, the Russians. And then you wonder, well, where are the examples of the Turkish language in the groups that were supposedly under this kind of, you know, Roman Turkish domination? 
but I just don't know. I, I haven't had enough sort of interest in it to, to spend a lot of time with it, but I would agree with him that the current relationship we have to chronology is inaccurate. And as far as how deep is the inaccuracy, I, I just don't know. Right. I mean, when you uncover a deception of such magnitude as the one you present in Caesar's Messiah, it just blows the doors wide open for all sorts yeah. of speculation, because yeah. what can we trust, you know? I agree. I When I first started doing the literary analysis of the Gospels, I had no idea it was going to completely change my ability to understand about even things like our dating system, but it did. And as you mentioned in the introduction, it really changed kind of my relationship to thinking about how government operates and what lies in back of government. When Constantine made Christianity state religion or began the process, he also created a whole other cluster of edicts. And it, whereas he's famous for the creation of Christianity as a state religion, and he gets positive accolades historically for some reason for this, you know, he's supposedly moving us from paganism. But in fact, if you look at all of these edicts that Constantine was issuing in the early part of the fourth century, Christianity was just one of them. All of the rest of them were regarding the creation of the feudal system. Hmm. In other words, you know, he was the one who really began the process by which, you know, you couldn't leave the land, you couldn't own land, you had to keep the same occupation as your parent, your children could be sold if, you know, the magistrate wanted to increase population in some other area. So basically, you became a serf, a slave. Now, in that conjunction of edicts, you have Christianity. And, and once you look at it as one of the edicts of the creation of the feudal system, it makes perfect sense suddenly. It's just a psyop. It's just basically saying you will be a slave, but after you're dead, there's going to be a worker's paradise. Hmm. And so that's why, you know, you should obey the magistrates and do what we say, because it isn't Caesar telling you what to do. It's the Pope. It's the Pontiff Maximus. But bear in mind that the Pontiff Maximus was simply a title that Caesar held. What we refer to as the Pope, the Pontiff Maximus, this was one of the titles that the Caesar held. It simply meant the head of the Roman College of Priests. And then the other oddball thing is the Vatican, where the Pope resides, is in the Palatine, where the Roman Caesars had their palace. So when you just look at this as a, you know, as these are all data points in relationship to the feudal system, it's a fairly clear picture, right? Christianity was just a psyop. It was just a way to get people to be easy to control mm -hmm. um, because they had this religious belief, which led in a hierarchical structure to the Pope, which gave them, you know, a way to control people with the idea of religion as opposed to military force. When you can control people with mental devices, it's a lot cheaper than military might. So this was a great idea and uh, lasted for 1500 years. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I, I love how wide open it spreads everything. And I'm, I was looking at some of the criticisms because I am fairly new to this perspective. And, you know, you come across ones that say, well, if this was propaganda aimed at Jewish sex, why spread it so far and wide to people and cultures that have nothing to do with that? And as you just articulated, it's for those added structural elements. It has a lot of benefits that don't translate directly to the Jewish people. And I think it's clear that we've seen how it's been implemented over the years. And 
I guess to fast forward a little bit in time, another interesting saga, just as an example of things we need to look at with new eyes. I've heard you say that even something like the famous Irish potato famine isn't really some spud fungus, but rather a Freemasonic plot of Irish extermination. Is that true? Yeah, that is true. The documentation for this is really clear. And there's a website run by the Irish scholar and historian Chris Fogarty that I would recommend people attend. And there you'll get to see things like the bills of lading that described how much food was being taken out of Ireland during this period. And you'll also see the number of British troops that were inside of Ireland. The number escapes me, but it's just an enormous fraction, perhaps 70% of all of the British troops in this period and say, you know, the 1830s or 1850 were at one time or another in Ireland because the people were basically attempting to rebel, having their food stolen. What's really important about the Irish so-called potato famine, which Fogarty simply refers to as Irish Holocaust, which is the correct description, is that after the fact, they came up with this idea that it was the potato crop failure that caused the, the famine. And this has been universally understood. But the details to understand what really happened are in existence. And so this is sort of a, you know, the struggle of mind control versus the truth springing up. We'll, we'll see what happens. But hopefully people will start to recognize that it was a 100% population reduction maneuver. That's really what occurs here. And it wasn't a small number. A lot of times people will say it was like 1 million. Well, Fogarty's got good data on this. It actually was around 6 million Irish people ended up being killed or starved one way or another. Hmm. So again, what's important is that this takes you right into Palmerston, who was the British prime minister and also one of the largest landowners in Ireland during this time, and British Freemasonry. And if you want to get a perspective of the British Freemason idea about equality as opposed to genocide, you have to bear in mind that Palmerston was the head Freemason of the Orient when he was residing there. And so he was the one who actually led the British battleships against the Chinese who were attempting to uh, resist opium addiction. So these are important historical data points. I mean, because you have, when you get in, say, like to the creation of the counterculture, a lot of times people say, they ask me, well, how could anyone be so evil as to, you know, do something on this scale to society? Well, just the same people who perpetrated the Irish famine, genocide, and also addicted 25% of the Chinese adults to opium. Huh. I mean, there is inside of Freemasonry something really not just violent, but racially destructive because it targets these groups and attempts basically to exterminate them. So that's why I encourage people to not simply take my word for it, but you know, if you actually have this idea about the Irish potato famine, so-called, go to Chris's website and get the data. His documentation is really 
Excellent. And, you know, you won't have any, no one will have any confusion at all about what happened after you spend some time at the site. The Masonic control in Britain simply decided to reduce the Irish Catholic population and did so. Huh. Man, no story can be taken at face value. It just seems like everything is games within games. And I get the same thing about 9-11. People will say, well, how could the government be so evil as to let that happen? It's like, this is not new. This isn't like the one time they killed their own people, all right? It's just ridiculous the way people try to frame things that way. and. You mentioned there being a racial motivation here, and it is interesting because we have the New Testament born out of a conflict between Jewish sects and the Roman Empire. We have World War II presented as a conflict between Germans and Jews. The entire war on terror centers around Babylon. What is it about this region or this religious subtext or racial subtext that seems to seep into so much? There's clearly something beneath the surface that we can kind of get glimpses of, but it's hard to fully flesh out. I think the best way to understand it is simply start with the creation of Zionism, which is not a Jewish or did not come from people who were purportedly Jews, but rather came from British Freemasons. It was Lord Shaftbury and his son-in-law, Palmerston, the same Palmerston that had blown up the Chinese and starved the Irish. They were also the first Zionists. Palmerston is the first person who actually, he said, basically, it's time for the Jews to return to the homeland, which was news to the Jews. Uh, <laughs> they, they didn't have a clue about this. And in fact, you know, a number of Jewish historians have puzzled over this is why would purportedly Anglican British politicians decide that now is the time for the recreation of the state of Israel? But they did. And they developed what was known as the Quattro Coronati, which was a Masonic lodge, a research lodge. And from this, well, actually before it, there were expeditions that were organized basically by the Freemasons funding different groups, often including members of the British royal family that went to Judea and did archaeologic digs. And they were basically looking for the historical evidence for the state of Israel, for the ancient state of Israel. So one of the chief archaeologists, Charles Warren, then returned to London and set up the Quattro Coronati, the research lodge, which was basically, you know, had one of its primary focuses was researching whether or not there was evidence of ancient Israel. But all of the time, they were promoting Zionism. They were promoting the return of the Jews to Judea. And then this, this group then produced the famous person who was given to history as the beginning of Zionism, Herzl. But if you look at Herzl's background, you can see that he was, he was obviously set in motion by the Quattro Coronati and this group. He actually had the name in college, which was 20 years before he began his career as a Zionist. He had the name Tancred, which is a character from a novel by Disraeli, who was in the Quattro Coronati sphere. And Tancred was an individual who had helped return, basically, uh, he defeat the, the infidels and restore the Holy Land. And so you can see that, you know, Herzl was obviously in league with the, the proto-Zionists from the very beginning. And then if you look at his funding and stuff, you can see it's coming from the same, the same groups. 
And then this group incidentally then goes on and you can trace directly, you know, the Balfour Declaration right out of these individuals. So you have, you know, the British Freemasons working with politicians in the British Isles and elite Jewish banking families, and then you end up with the Balfour Declaration. Okay, it's just a very straight historical trajectory. I, you know, I haven't filled in all the dots, but anyone interested, I'll be happy to help them, you know, with all of that information. But what it really gets interesting is that the same group also produces Nazism. Now, this is a, a little more tangential, a little harder to see, but it's actually not that difficult to follow. What happens is with Nazism, it comes from the Tool Society. The Tool Society brings the swastika. Actually, I'm not sure if it had the swastika, but it certainly has a, the Nazi party and it has occultism. It's like a racially influenced occult group. And it actually owned the Nazi party. It, it actually had created the National Socialist Party. This was a guy, Sabatendorf, who had basically gotten his motivation from uh, Helen Blavatsky, bizarre individual who created theosophy. Now, theosophy was the other strand that leads to Nazism. It was involved with these nationalist movements that come from Manzini. Uh, he, he was one of the originators of them. And Blavatsky is working with these so-called nationalist groups and socialist groups. National socialism was a Blavatsky idea, but she was an occultist. Always the, this concept of the occult is visible as you go backwards from you know the Nazi party. And Blavatsky is the one who actually kind of transitioned the swastika. The swastika had been a Freemason representation of something. If you look at Rudyard Kipling's books, he uses the swastika very often. And in a few instances, you can see he has it on animals that look like they are being either punished or in a position of they have to pay homage to whoever is the, you know, the leader of the, some group. And so Blavatsky, she uses the swastika. She brings the idea of Aryan occultism and then national socialism. So this is kind of well known. People are, you know, they know that the Thule Society had been the originator of the Nazi party. They know people can see that Blavatsky basically was, you know, had kind of brought the Thule Society into existence, that she brought all these elements. But it's when you go back another step, then you can see that Blavatsky was basically set in motion by the same people that created Zionism because there was a member of Quattro Coronati who there are documents showing that this was how Blavatsky was placed into motion. Blavatsky basically, you know, she with the theosophy is just creating a, a kind of an occult version of Freemasonry. And there is a document that's still in existence, which shows where she gets her authority from. And it was from John Yarger. And he had been a member of this, you know, Quattro Coronati Lodge. Now, what's interesting is that Yarger is also the guy who basically created Aleister Crowley. Yeager had taken sort of the normal Freemason occultism, whatever that is. I mean, it's a secret society. No one really knows exactly how far down, you know, it goes into occultism. But he had created an addition to it, which he called the ancient and primitive rite, which supposedly is the rites of Memphis and Mizram. 
I don't mean to use a lot of weird words, but just to give you a flavor of all this. But it comes right from uh, Quattro Coronati Lodge 2076. Jaeger had been a member of it during this time. And then he wanted Crowley to then basically develop a specific organization that would handle sort of the presentation of these ideas to the public. And that is what we know of as OTO which, of course, then all branches off into the Golden Dawn, which then circles around and becomes one of the foundations of the fascism occultism. But when Jaeger Yarger died, I mean, his Crowley's newspaper, Oriflame, you know, had a huge homage, obituary to him. And the, uh, the documents that were created by Yarger to set Crowley in motion are in existence. So this is why a number of people have wondered about this, and it's only when you, I think, look at it in the most paranoid light that it makes the most sense, which is that, you know, a group is basically maneuvering toward the creation of Israel, toward World War II. These things are not catastrophes to be avoided, but rather, you know, are in the broad geopolitical historical sense are to be, you know, encouraged. This is why when you look at someone like Winston Churchill, he's what I would call a lifetime actor. I mean, I just think he doesn't represent what he really is, his real motivations to the public. You know, we only get to see just a fraction of it, the ones that he wants us to see or the groups that are controlling him want us to see. The Churchill family, they are among the oldest Masonic families in Britain, in fact, may be the, in terms of particularly as the Masons entered into British aristocracy, are perhaps the oldest. You have documents going all the way back to the 18th century with Lord Henry John Spencer, who was one of the Churchill's ancestors and showing him as a high ranking Mason. So this is, you know, these strands need more detailing. But they are the real foundation of our understanding of World War II, in my opinion. This is how these movements and these political forces are, have been put into motion. They all go back to British Freemasonry and the relationship it has with elite Jewish banking families. Again, going back to Churchill, Churchill was basically at a half dozen times in his life was given huge amounts of money by Jewish bankers. Castle in Rothschild, there was another individual name escaped me, but, and there was a huge sums. I mean, these were millions of dollars. And now historians have said, well, this was a different age. And in fact, this was perhaps an attempt to buy political sway with a, you know, an influential British political family. Well, I can't find any documentation of any other individual who ever had this. And in fact, Jewish bankers are not really known as, you know, like just giving money away for nothing. So it's a mystery that I think is, you know, best explained by the fact that this relationship between the elite Jewish families and British Freemasonry is not something that we really understand. And I'm often, uh, you know, people wonder if I am anti-Semitic. You know, I would point out that I am not talking about some kind of general conspiracy by Jewish people, if the relationships I'm suggesting exist. 
In fact, just the opposite. I don't think that in general, Jewish people would have any more of a clue about what's going on at this level than anyone else would. What you have are societies that are in secret that are kept separate from the ordinary people. And, you know, when I talk about lifetime actors and I say, well, you know, the Bush family, Churchill, the Rothschilds, Castles, you know, the elite Jewish banking families and the Masonic families, there's some relationship there that needs an explanation because it's so foundational to all of the genocide. I mean, you know, Europeans, we've had, what's the number, you know, 150, 250, no one even knows how many millions have died over the last 100 years in wars and war-related events. So we are entitled and it's required that we try to have an understanding of what failed politically in in our history. (laughs) And so what I say is that when you come to people like Churchill and to Hitler, which, of course, Hitler is buried too deep to really do this test on, but there should be DNA testing. If we want to have a more effective democracy, we should know who in the hell we're voting for. And so I would say the relationship between like the Bush family, the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, all the oligarchs, all of this needs to be achieved as a database so that we can actually see what are the family and ethnic relationships. Because the only thing that we can be sure of, you know, it's like getting back to the, the sense of chronology. The only thing we can really be sure of is that the version we have is untrue. Right. I mean, that we can be positive about, you know, and, and I've, I've actually given a few techniques that could be used to create the database, because remember, you don't have to get George W. Bush. There are people in his family who would be, I think, somewhat removed, a few cousins that would give meaningful DNA, who might be actually willing to give up a Schwab so that we could start to build out the database. And just one little anecdote, a couple of years ago, I was, I was saying that, uh, you know, the media has been weaponized. You know, pop culture basically seems to be under the control of the group that has kind of the brave new world in mind. And I would really like to see these people identified. And I gave the example of Madonna. And I was explaining why, you know, her meteoric rise, even though she has basically no talent, you know, there's a lot of these suspicious aspects to her. I said, you know, we should like see if she would like let us have some DNA and we could start a media database. And I gave a few other individuals And then last year, someone contacted me and he goes, you know, Joe, uh, I just learned that Madonna now travels with a DNA cleanup crew. (laughs) I didn't believe it. And I researched it. It is absolutely correct. And not only she, but a number of people who are kind of well-known media types now are traveling with DNA cleanup crews. So we'll see where it all goes. But all I can say is, You know, uh, history is something we need to have a deeper and more correct understanding of. We're looking at things like autism, you know, at the skyrocketing rate. Now, once you look at 911 and recognize what I think is self-evident, that this was something that was done by our government, was covered up and lied about by our media. Well, now when you look at something like autism, you have to at least ask the question is, are we really seeing now the brave new world, you know, in motion? Because when Huxley wrote the book, and I will point out that Huxley was a lifetime actor, he he didn't write the book because he was warning anybody. This was a way of celebrating the achievement. 
you know, he talks about this intellectual stratification and a small group that controls everything and the state producing all of the beings and then conditioning them. And then if, you know, someone is upset there and then drugs are given, a completely state, meaning a very small select group, controls all of the aspects of human existence. Well, one of the key things is that you have epsilons and deltas, you know, who are so stupid that they are pleased to do menial labor. And now you see the rise of autism. To me, it just seems like it's an obvious question to ask. And I would point out that Hexley was very good friends with the Rothschild family. And one of the conversations that was recorded by someone who was there described Huxley talking about human population in very broad strokes. You know, you can remove this group, put that group there, you know. And then beyond that, when the MKUltra pay requisitions came out, you got to see that one of the experiments that was being funded by this criminal operation could be traced to the administration of Aldous Huxley. There's a letter actually written by Huxley to uh, Humphrey Osman telling him to go to Jolly West and to make sure that the experiment was conducted in a certain way. And this was one of the experiments that was funded by MKUltra. So when you hear Huxley giving an interview with Mike Wallace, the famous one on YouTube, where he's talking about how worried he is, you know, about government gaining control over the ability to manipulate humans through drugs and psychological techniques. You have to remember this guy is an absolute liar, you hmm. see, because at the exact time he was giving the interview, he was also engaged in the MKUltra experiments administrating them. So he wasn't afraid of the government getting these techniques. He was working to make sure it happened. <laughs> wow, man, a lot of information. And you are right. It's just a ton to unpack. I think occultism does seem to be maybe one of the threads that could be considered connective tissue amongst these groups. And you're right in that nearly all world leaders seem to be placed by someone behind the curtain. And maybe a DNA database is the only way to unravel it all at this point. You know, I have guests who look at the Nazi apparatus going underground with Project Paperclip. The fact that the British royal family is actually German, they say. They look at Big Pharma and a lot of modern corporations of German origin, you know, the ones that are causing a lot of problems. But then on the other hand, I got guests who look at Israel and Mossad. They look at banking families, the creators of Hollywood, and they see mainly Jewish fingerprints behind the curtain. And I can kind of see both sides of that coin. And like you mentioned, there's some kind of relationship between the Zionists and the British Freemasons. But if the British royal family is German, then that just twists everything on its head. I don't know. I can see both sides of that coin. But what say you, Joe? Is this a false dichotomy that these are two different sides? No, I, I mean, well, the, the dichotomy is not false. But I think the only way you get to the bottom of it is DNA analysis. What I would suggest is this, that the Masons are basically at the highest level are crypto Jews. And so when you see the British royal family and Skull and Bones, which is, you know, a manifestation of Freemasonry, different name for it. That one explanation would be that these are people who have some identification back in time to Judaism, but who represent themselves for political effectiveness as Gentiles. If you look at, you're talking about like the Nazi party, how it's being funded. If you look at Brown Harriman. Right. It's a law firm. You have, you know, Dulles and Harriman, Bush families in there. 
And then look at the relationship between Brown, Harriman, and Skull and Bones. Now, it's basically, they're just one and the same. This law firm is completely staffed originally by Skull and Bones member, but it worked in conjunction with the Warburg family to help fund the Nazis, right? Well, how can this be? I mean, you see, these are supposedly elite Brahmin-type Gentiles. Why would they be you know, working with Warburg? So, you see, when I look at World War II, what I see is it's the Holocaust of the Gentile. I think you got well over 100 million killed. In terms of soldiers? And civilians. Right. The Homolador, which is part of all of this, you know, had at least, uh, geez, I, I mean, I over 10 million people were starved in the Ukraine. And so... You can't even, I mean, rounding numbers are 10 million people when you get into the, the 20th century destruction of Europeans. And so what, what's really in back of all this? Well, you need to really be able to identify these people to the extent we can with DNA. But you can approach things analytically. I mean, on one hand, you have Churchill who had the idea of total war. Now, total war is basically just the announcing that all moral restrictions are off the table and that the one entity will attempt to exterminate another. Total war is the destruction of civilians. This is why Churchill advocated the firebombing of Dresden and Hamburg. I mean, these are not military requirements. This is just the extermination of a people. Churchill said he hated Germans, wanted to destroy the German people. This is what he said. Now, oddly enough, at this exact moment in history, the Germans are led by someone who has the exact same opinion, basically, in the sense that Hitler said that if the German people fail in the war, they deserve to perish. This was his explanation as to why he wouldn't surrender and why basically he permitted the civilian firebombing and the Red Horde to overrun and destroy the population, even though there was no military chance of success, right? So think about this just as an investigator into history. It's a little unusual that such bizarre moral positions as the requirement for a race to extinguish itself if it loses to be, you know, juxtaposed at the exact time to a leader that wants to advocate total war. So to me, this is fake and that this is just the holding of the entities in place of the opposite sides for the purpose of population reduction. And I think the same thing is true in World War I. In World War I, basically all of the generals on the Allied side were Masons. And even though this can't be documented as well, this is the claim on the other side, you see. Eustace Mullins, who is a pretty good researcher, in my opinion, I know a lot of people think not ill of him, but I, I have found him to be pretty accurate and his citations being correct when I've tried to you know, verify them. Mullins claims that a British nurse was captured toward the end of World War I and that she uncovered the fact that the Allies were giving food to the Germans. And she recognized that this was being done just to prolong the war. She wrote about this in a nursing journal. She was then captured by the Germans the next week and executed, the only nurse to have that fate administered during World War I. 
So that would be an example of what we're dealing with, is that once the governments of different countries are controlled surreptitiously by a single group, then genocide is trivial, you see. Mm-hmm. You can just maneuver them into war and then hold the, you know, as long as the obedience in the ranks is maintained, you can just hold them in place until the populations are evaporated. And so this is the concern I have, Greg, is that when you look at World War One and World War Two and the Civil War and the American Revolutionary War and the French Revolution and, you know, you go on and on, what you see are these really illogical aspects of history, just over and over again, a negative serendipity that just occurs constantly with the result of destruction, of of genocide, which is why I think, you know, like tracing the swastika backwards to people like Ruskin and Kipling and the British royal family who are Masonic, and then seeing that this is the same group that produces Zionism, I think that kind of gives a sort of a revolution of consciousness. You know what I mean? It gives a, you know, you got to really start to think a little differently. These things can be, you know, well understood. It's not hard for a researcher to go back and actually trace the the exact sequence that I, I've laid out. This is all you know, just internet research, a couple hours, maybe a few days of work. Everyone can get this done. And then the question is, well, what's the purpose? What is the plan? Well, you know, let's start out with getting a, an understanding of who has taken control of the political and financial world. What are these individuals, right? What are they? What is the relationship? What is the relationship between skull and bones and the British Zionists and the elite Jewish banking families? I mean, what exactly is agreed to and understood and what organizing principles are in motion? What brought about this catastrophe? One thing that you know, really got me thinking a few years ago, and this is like something I'm just astounded there isn't more questioning of, is it led me into like questioning the Holocaust narrative, Mm -hmm. which I know is a very, very touchy area. You know, people don't like this, any kind of revisionism here. And I'm not at the point of research where I really can do much, but I will say that I don't buy the current story because of one really terrible fact. And that is, At the end of World War II, you had the Nuremberg trial, and the U.S. government basically created a kind of psychological apparatus to come up with both recommendations during the trial and also to present kind of a description of the German people to the world media. And this was run by a guy named Ewan Cameron. Mm. Ewan Cameron. He was one they, they selected. And Cameron came up with the idea that the Germans, he was like Churchill. He hated them. He said they were insane as a people and they needed to have a kind of very, very close control over them and they should never be permitted to be a free people, basically. Now, Cameron then, you know, is the one who actually brought the so-called German atrocities to the, well, he and C.D. Jackson, but I I won't go into C.D., but anyway, just so he was like instrumental in bringing these information about. Now, later... MKUltra came into the public awareness through, you know, a number of ways it became known. But one thing turned out, a whole bunch of the pay requisitions were found by uh, John Marks, and then he wrote his book about the Manchurian candidate. Well, anyway, in the pay requisitions, you could see that Ewan Cameron had been an MKUltra 
physician. He had been doing experiments for MKUltra. And then the avalanche occurred. Then you started to have all of these atrocity stories where it turned out that Cameron was engaged in all of this human experimentation. In other words, he would take individuals who were just depressed, who came to him as a psychiatrist, he would put them into chemical comas, he'd keep them there for a month, and during that time, he'd give them electroshock. I mean, this is all Wikipedia stuff, right? You and Cameron. So it just occurred to me that, well, wait a second. The guy who brings the claim of the Germans using human experimentation, right, is actually someone who did human experimentations on, on a very criminal level. And see, the analytically, this just doesn't make any sense, right? It just is not a coincidence that could ever occur accidentally. So you can see that there's something there that needs clarification, right? So mm -hmm. this is an amazing fact that uh, is not, for some reason, ever uh, you know, scrutinized, but it's just, it, again, it's just at the Wikipedia level, Cameron was both the one who was really most identified with human atrocities and experimentation, and he is the one who, who gave the world this understanding about the Germans doing these things. So if Cameron breaks down, if, if this whole understanding of history that Cameron provides concerning the Holocaust breaks down, then you have to go, well, where does it end, you see? So if you look at the Holocaust from the perspective of, you know, psychological power in terms of, you know, obviously intimidation or just of a, you know, worldview, right? It's very powerful, very potent. So it needs, you know, high level of of understanding and clarity, and yet there it is, just sitting right in front of everybody, is can you really trust anything Ewan Cameron says? So, you know, World War II, we have our ideas of history, we have our ideas of this character, Jesus Christ, or even of the playwright William Shakespeare. I mean, the, these are, you know, kind of structures inside of our mind. But in my opinion, sad to say, uh, citizens would be well advised to actually start to wonder about these things, because the process of history that has gone on for the last 150 years just isn't working, at least not for Europeans. I mean, we are being genocided in, a, in military insanities. And now when you look at the toxicity in the food supply and the environment, we're, we're not doing too well in that regard. So I know it's difficult to really wonder about these things objectively, but I just feel we have to. I think there's enough there, you know, that justifies it. Right. A lot of great points. A lot of real curious things indeed. Of course, war is only a net positive for the bankers that seem to fund both sides. And you're asking some of those million dollar questions that we probably wouldn't be here to talk about if we had the real answers to. Yep. <laughs> it's just a lot. And I, I guess I would say in terms of Europeans being genocided, Americans and Europeans comparatively to any other group seem to be doing the best or reaping the most benefits compared to the sweatshops in China, the people, you know, risking their lives to come across the border because there's no opportunity in Mexico. You know, the refugees, of course, that had their homeland destroyed. It seems to some people, I think it sounds a little insensitive to say Europeans are being genocided when you consider our position compared to other groups. What would you say to that? I would just say it depends on which Europeans you're referring to. I think the oligarchs are doing just fine 
I would point out that uh, in the United States recently, I think the first time since they've actually kept these records, the projected lifetime, lifespan of white Americans has declined, which is quite amazing considering that supposedly we've been making medical advances over the last hundred years. So I would just say it's the slave that is unaware of his slavery is the easiest to control. And just as to give an example of what I think actually has happened is that when you look at Ireland, I don't really think that Catholics have ever had any political power there. I think that if you actually look at who is running the country, you have Masonic influence everywhere. And yet the people would think that, well, Ireland is a Catholic country run by Catholic, almost people, sometimes people call it a theocracy. But I just don't see this. And I think that, you know, look, you look recently, one of the Irish prime ministers, Mary Robinson, was talking about the Irish Holocaust as a natural disaster. Well, I can just guarantee you that she knows the truth and is lying. So I would really wonder in terms of the political power. People would say, well, you know, I mean, just as an example, I've heard often people say, well, America is a Christian nation and Christians do well here. Well, if you look at all the presidents who are Masons or members of Skull and Bones or who have unknown provenance, you really can't see much Christian power, in fact, inside America. I mean, basically what you have is a hidden Masonic power in America. I mean, George Washington, right? He made jokes about Christians. All of his generals were Masons. Well, why is that? Then what, what is the purpose of the war then, you see? So the material advantage that Americans have is real enough. And I mean, I live here and I've enjoyed it in many ways, but I just don't think that the future looks good. I don't think that until we understand who our political leaders are, we can really claim to have any control over our future. Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't really focus so much on a relative advantage, but more on just the absolute nature of what is in charge of the country. You know, like Donald Trump, people were saying, well, you know, Trump, he's going to drain the swamp and he's an anti-globalist. And I said, well, you know, I don't think so because when Nicholas Tesla died, his intellectual estate was seized by the government and they gave it to one of their uh, physicists for vetting and he decided to keep it inside just the, the private domain and that was Donald Trump's uncle. Right. So this is a very bad sign. It shows that the family has this background into basically the ruling secret society. And so what I said to your point is that the way that they control us is with the false dialectic. This is the basic structure. You have Hillary and you have Donald. Many people who like Hillary hate Donald. Many people who are for Donald hate Hillary. And because you hate one or the other, you then are able to you know, go into the process and you either win or lose and you, you feel like democracy took place. But the fact is both of these entities are controlled by the same group. Both Donald and Hillary will continue the wars in the Mideast. Both will continue the ownership of the Federal Reserve by a few families. 
and will not permit the media to do much scrutiny of these primary facts. So what you have really is a puppet show that produces drama. And if you buy into the drama, if you hate either Donald or, or Hillary, then you're less likely to see the strings, you see. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, is that it is a puppet show. There are strings. We need to look at them. And the idea that because there's wealth in the country relative to other nations, that this would suggest that, you know, we have some viable political control, some democratic input. I'm afraid that's, that's really not true. What really America is doing, in fact, is producing the technology for a technologic slave state. I mean, that's really what our product is. We are producing the snooping technology, the drones, the robotic weapons, the social media that has very sophisticated algorithms for understanding all of us. I was told the other day that Facebook, if they have 20 likes by an individual, they are able to know and predict more about that individual than their best friend. And I think with 70, I believe the idea was is they would do a better job of predicting these things than yourself, right? Mm. So we're in a post-911 environment. I think 911 was kind of the line in the sand. If, if someone wants to take the position that it's unclear, then pox voviscum. I, I just peace with you. I, I, all I can say is it looks to me like an absolutely 100% clear-cut false flag. It shows the government is malevolent. It shows there's a secret society. So when you see all of this technologic achievement that is being made in terms of snooping, then you have to assume that this is all going to be used malevolently and it's going to be used against the people. So this is my concern. One of the reasons why I, you know, try to bring this information out is that since 911, I think most clear-minded Americans recognize there's something evil inside the government and it has control over both the government and the media. Couldn't do 911 if you didn't control the media. So when you talk about America's advantage we have, I think technologically that advantage is expressed primarily in tools of enslavement, right? Mm -hmm. This is a concern. And I think, you know, public should resist this and try to have a more effective democracy, starting out with knowing who you're voting for. Well said. It's absolutely a concern, and it is a scary decade ahead, to say the least. It's about time I cut you loose. This has been really great. You're a wealth of information. I'm in awe of the dedication and the retention that you have for this stuff. Uh, do tell people how to continue their Joe Atwell journey if they want to hear more. I mean, you mentioned that forthcoming book. Remind them of that so that we make sure everybody hears it. Sure. I mean, well, I have two books. You can go to CaesarsMessiah.com and you can buy the books there, but they're on Amazon. Caesar's Messiah has been a shocking bestseller. I have no idea why. <laughs> Something so technical has been such a big seller, but it has. There's a documentary about it that is available. but. If they go to postflaviana.org, they can see articles I've written, basically literary analysis on like Ken Kesey, J.D. Salinger, things like that. But the new book will be out in two months. It basically attempts to name names and uh, it uses Brave New World as its, you know, sort of the basis, like instead of the Gospels or Shakespeare, it just says, look, here's, here's a piece of literature. 
here's the individual who wrote it, here's what it means. And then it tries to just alert the population that there is malevolence that's hidden and that we have to uh, do the work, the basic core work of democracy, which is to understand our politicians. I mean, you know, people often, you know, they say, well, it's voting. It's not voting. Voting is the afterthought. (laughs) What we need to do is to understand the real motivation of the people who are in front of us, who have come seeking office. That's what we're not doing. And that is the job of uh, the alternative media. And, you know, support Greg. I mean, this is really, these are the critical times, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's a race and we have to get the information out. The, the faster we get to the point where the public has gotten to a tipping point where Fox and CNN, New York Times, all this stuff is no longer taken seriously and people exclusively come to individuals like yourself, you know, for information and for processing the world then the better, because that's really where we have to be to start moving toward an effective democracy, that actually we get to vote for people that are representing our interests, not the oligarchs. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And thanks again for the kind words. I just uh, set them up with an introduction and then get out of the way for the most part. But I am really excited to read the new book. Hopefully we can talk again at that point. And sure. I appreciate you being here. Keep doing what you do and take care out there. Thank you, brother. Thank you very much. You got it. Thank you. Sweet baby Jesus, people. The great Joe Atwell making a Higher Side Chats debut. I think Joe is a great guest. I really enjoyed that. I think he's a really thorough researcher. And even though there are a couple of points I disagree with him on, so what? His Caesar's Messiah stuff is something I really could have spent the whole two hours talking to him about, really. But the truth is, he's talked about it so much at this point that we really didn't give it a whole lot more than just a broad overview. Still, you know how when a comedian delivers a great line and you're just like, yes, I have that thought all the time. I just couldn't articulate it. That is how I felt when I heard about Caesar's Messiah. Of course, the New Testament is state-sponsored propaganda. Of course, it was crafted in such a way to be a layered mockery of the people it was meant to influence and provide a template for a peaceful Messiah. We are just so easy to manipulate that they just gave us a story that suited their needs. Don't fight back, turn the other cheek. This life may suck and you're under the thumb of tyrants, but just work hard because the next life is going to be great. And then of course in the story, Jesus is brutally murdered by the Roman Empire as if to unconsciously implant in the heads of anyone thinking of rebelling, we're going to crucify your ass. (laughs) It's just a story I like and kind of want to be true, But it's amazing that there's actually so much data here to suggest it is. And I don't know that Christianity has a singular answer or a singular source necessarily, but this Roman propaganda element is definitely in play. Mapping the bullet points of Jesus' travels against the major bullet points in Titus' battles against the Jewish rebels, it seems to map pretty well. And just seems like the type of code the upper crust just can't help but include in things. And I just love the point Joe makes from there saying that once you understand at that time depth what kind of propaganda is being disseminated, it kind of teaches you how governments work. It teaches you how the state works moving forward. And you got to assume they had the same level of cunning that they had back then at every step of the game till today. I'm sure there's been ups and downs, strikes and gutters, peaks and valleys, but generally I'm right on board with that. Now, we didn't really talk about Joe's work into trying to decode and identify Shakespeare, 
but he basically considers it a response to the Gospels written by a woman who recognized the satire and wanted to offer up a rebuttal. And that is the underlying message of the works of Shakespeare. I don't want to oversimplify, and I'm just paraphrasing, only because I did mention that in the intro and we didn't get to it. It goes much deeper than that, but that's kind of the cliff notes to how it ties into the bigger story. It's an interesting take for sure, and I thought this whole interview was really insightful and fun, especially as we got into the elite families and some of their other manipulations. I know a lot of people think I'm too focused on Nazis and not enough on Jews, but whatever. I just go where my favorite researchers are going a lot of the time. If Joseph Farrell writes a new book about Jewish banking families, it's not like I'm going to avoid it. And I'll talk about taboo perspectives. I mean, that's kind of what this whole thing is. I think now we're kind of normalizing taboo perspectives, so people want to go the extra mile, and I'm cool with that. Let's talk about things that are out of bounds and unspeakable, but I just want to do it with people who are nice, at least. I'm not looking to spend my time with assholes. That's why I got out of corporate retail management. So I was really thankful for Joe coming on because we were able to dissect some of that a little bit more than usual, especially the World War II stuff. And Joe never said this to me, but I know he's got to get some pushback on his work on the psychedelic movement being a total operation from the CIA, and he's done a lot of that work with Jan Irving. So I wouldn't have been surprised if he declined. The show's called The Higher Side Chats. We know that my show with Jan Irving didn't go very well. Kind of devolved over that quote-unquote evidence that Terrence McKenna was dirty because I think that's super flimsy and it's kind of based on something he said to an audience and he's a prankster. Now, if you have some CIA check with Terrence McKenna's name on it, then I'm wrong. That's cool. I don't really even need Terrence McKenna for my belief system to stay right where it is. So now when people bring up that little piece of information that Terrence McKenna is dirty, I just roll my eyes and move on. I can see why you would think it. I'm not even saying it isn't true, but it's just not important to me. I shouldn't even say that. Like, it is important, but personally, the dude taught me a lot. He opened my mind to so many strange, out-of-the-box ideas, and I don't really have this black or white type of labeling of public figures as if they're clean or dirty. It's, of course, something to take on a case-by-case basis, but I think a lot of alternative characters have been of interest to the CIA and FBI. How could they not be? And just because their circles overlapped a time or two doesn't mean we should 100% dismiss them, in my opinion. I think that's a little too harsh, painting with too broad of a brush. The truth is probably a little bit more nuanced than that. And because I think psychedelics are powerful enough to actually turn people away from authority, I don't discount a connected person actually having a genuine experience of enlightenment. I don't deny the idea that someone who's in too deep and also takes mushrooms and LSD could end up trying to play both sides and actually speak from their heart from time to time, even though they're involved with some really deep, dark characters. My door is open for that. But the overreaching point is that I actually do agree with a lot of the things you'll hear Joe say about the 60s movement in other interviews and other areas. The CIA was clearly involved. A lot of the bands in the movement were military intelligence projects, and psychedelics were definitely field-tested on the people. I just think that the CIA's mindset was so based on weaponization that they didn't really understand what these drugs do. Sure, you can torture people with them, 
but they also open minds to the rat race, the shame of our whole work-for-retirement system, the cradle-to-grave economic slavery model. I mean, they get you to rebuke authority. This is exactly why there was a drug war. Oops, that wasn't the effect we were going for. Reel it back, reel it back. That's just how I see it. And I don't really even need to be right about any of that because for me personally, I have had psychedelic compounds to thank for many pivotal moments in my life. Weed opened the door to fleshing out a lot of my initial conspiratorial thoughts. A bad mushroom trip in the comedy store condo with Ari Shafir and friends forced me to see the light and that I needed to stop playing fledgling comedian wannabe and do something more meaningful. And it literally changed the higher side chats into what it is now. Salvia brought me to contact with non-human entities in a foreign realm, confirmed for me that there is more than materialism to this life firsthand. And MDMA broke down the barriers between my wife and I when neither of our egos were going to let us put ourselves out there first to make that first move. We had too much pride. Now we're married. So each of these compounds has done far more good for me than negative, but I also didn't abuse these things. And I know that's not true for everyone. It doesn't have to be true for everyone. And it has nothing to do with very real attempts to corrupt and control the 60s youth. (laughs) So I know that rant probably sounded a bit out of place if you don't know the wider scope of Joe's work and the work he's done with Jan Irvin, who thinks everyone's an agent of some kind. He said THC was too polished to be some stoner from San Diego. (laughs) And, you know, Mark Devlin and I were talking, and apparently Jan has even turned on Joe now, just since the time we've recorded this. I haven't really dug into it. I guess I don't really care. I probably shouldn't have even said anything. Maybe they worked it out. But it just sounds like such a Jan Irving move. (laughs) Man, I get kind of loose-lipped in these uh, wrap-ups, but I should probably try to stay a bit more on track here. It's just that having Joe on stirred up some things that I haven't got to talk about. And I guess I got it all out now. But the couple of times I did pull out something that was a point of contention, I think Joe handled it beautifully just by saying... Look, we have a malevolent, abusive, psychopathic cabal running things, and they've been doing it for a long time, and as long as that's the case, all of our data is tainted. We don't really know what the right way to live is. We don't really know what systems work best for the people. We have ideas, and I know Joes are a little more fleshed out than that, but I still think it's a fair point, it's a decent response, and because I would rather seek common ground too, I figured, fuck it, let's go with it, he's right, Let's focus on the structure overall. Let's focus on the elite, the enemy itself. So long story short, I really like Joe's work. I got a lot of respect for him. I totally recommend his books. Really looking forward to the secret language of the oligarchs and to putting them in the every so often rotation. I think this is one of those A-level shows. I hope you do too. Of course, as always, there is a second hour to today's conversation if you are a Plus member. Today we talked about Amazon, Google, Whole Foods, and the CIA, the CIA's banking family origins, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, the weaponization of family, feminism, pharmacology, integration, and other things. If you like the way I host this show and the guests that I consider worth your time, I would love to give you five two-hour shows a month if you'd be kind enough to give me five bucks a month. That's how it works. Do it for yourself if it's something that you would enjoy or see value in. And I'll keep trying to tempt you with great first hours. This is the game we play, right? 
So as for today, all really interesting food for thought. I can see where Joe is coming from, even when I come from somewhere different. But I'm all in for the call for an elite DNA database. I would love to see the connections that come up that we haven't uncovered yet. I also think the research into lifetime actors is really provocative, too. Joe is at the tip of the spear on that with the late, great Dave McGowan. And Mark Devlin, too, actually, is carrying the torch as well. And then uh, when I was going back through this and listening to the names and connections that Joe drops in that 30 to 50 minute area, God, I'm going to be in some of those rabbit holes for a while. Several new names and threads I haven't heard about. So what else is there to say? Again, big thanks to Joe for his work, his time, and the kind words about me and Higher Side Chats. And big thanks to Alex Sakaris too, from Skeptico, for putting a good word in for me. We're also going to get him on soon, too. But for now, that's going to do it. I've done my part. Your move backstage stackers of the political roster, crypto-Jewish, occulty, Kabbalah cabals, and ill-intentioned oligarchs, and your nefarious family trees. Your fucking move. You know the plan has always been to hack your brain. MK just trying to drive you insane. They'll explode your heart if they think that's what it takes You think I'm answering the phone? Well, I ain't You gotta keep the curtains drawn Cause you don't want anyone thinking you're at home Well, you're not You should tape the mail slot And baby, if I seem withdrawn Let me say it's cause I just don't wanna go and get whacked Maybe you should know that the trauma affects you like it does everyone It's just the game plan, it's what the world's become They want a pat down and a swap Don't you see what's going on? Well now you know You're better keeping on your own Cause you can see the masters lie too much Oh baby, you can only trust yourself and if you think the system's out of touch It is and you can only trust yourself I hope you know the elite aren't your friends They'll suck out everything from you in the end And if for some reason you think I might be wrong I wonder where you got that opinion from you gotta keep the curtains strong Cause you don't want anyone thinking you're at home Well, you're not You should tape the mail slot And baby, if I seem withdrawn Let me say it's cause I just don't wanna go and get whacked Maybe you should know that The trauma affects you like it does everyone It's just the game plan It's what the world's become
are small Or maybe they aren't registering at all Now they know you're naive and vulnerable You won't believe all of the stunts that they'll pull Cause you can see the masters lie too much Oh baby, you can only trust yourself And if you think the system's out of touch It isn't, you can only trust yourself Cause you can see the masters lie too much Oh baby, you can only trust yourself And if you think the system's out of touch It isn't, you can 